0: Brought to you by Penguin. Welcome to the Penguin podcast. Just a friendly warning that there is occasional use of strong language. There's a voice that's just like, thinks of the yesterday and the birthday and the presents is just like, such bullshit Lily. Because...
1: <laughs> 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 Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, named Best Branded Podcast 2020 at the British Podcast Awards. This is the place where writers and artists choose a series of objects that have inspired their work, and we get to see a little of what makes them tick creatively. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. Today, of course, as always with the weekly Penguin Podcast, I'm broadcasting from home. So excuse any of the noises that may be going on in the background as my uh, 12-year-old son tries to homeschool himself. My guest today was the youngest model to feature on the cover of British Vogue, aged just 16, listed as one of the top models of the 2000s by Vogue Paris. In 2011, she graduated from Cambridge University with a double first in history of art. She has acted in films such as The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, alongside the late Heath Ledger. And as well as being an entrepreneur, she's more recently known for her active interest in the environment. For her new book, Who Cares Wins? Reasons for Optimism in Our Changing World. Wow! The people that she spoke to, Elon Musk, Al Gore, Sir David Attenborough, and the co-founders of Extinction Rebellion to explore solutions to the climate crisis. It is, of course, Lily Cole. Hi, Lily.
0: Hello, how are you doing?
1: I'm good, I'm good. Thanks for joining us, Lily. Uh, You've chosen some objects that have inspired your work. A photo of an iceberg and a ceramic speaker, and we're going to find out more about those in a moment. You come from quite humble beginnings. What do you remember of those early years that have really helped shape who you are today?
0: I think one of the things that maybe gives me, I wouldn't say unique perspective, but a certain perspective is that I've had very, very diverse experiences. So growing up in a kind of quite poor environment with a single mother who's disabled and watching you know, just being part of that reality um, and also travelling around the world and seeing um, many different communities around the world, contrasted with also very privileged experiences that fashion and film and and technology in those worlds brought to me, um, maybe just gives me a kind of diversity of experience. And I try and bring that, I think, to the book um, and to the different voices I try and bring into the book because I think it's really important that we listen to diverse voices and we create dialogue between them.
1: Now, of course... The threat of climate change is something that, uh, thankfully, most sane people admit is happening. But it was the hole in the ozone layer that was part of your childhood, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, I have a very distinct memory of learning about the ozone hole. It was a very kind of abstract, surreal threat. Um, And I use that story in the book as an example of optimism because In recent years we've managed to turn that corner and the international treaties that were signed to change the chemicals that were causing the ozone hole depletion are working and they expect that within this century the ozone hole will close. Um, So that's an example of how international agreements can be made to solve these problems once we discover the problems and we could then apply that logic to the other problems that we face today.
1: What was, and I guess there's not any one switch or catalyst, but when you started to feel more optimistic about what could be done rather than just being in some ways overwhelmed by the task?
0: It's just more a kind of attitude to life that I believe if you strive to be optimistic, if you strive to be positive and active in that optimism and um, positivity, you're more likely to create positive outcomes. And also, by the way, you're more likely to be happier on the on the journey towards those outcomes. Um, and then you can then apply that logic to, to any problem and to any situation. And it happens to be that the environmental one is one that I've concerned myself a lot with in you know in a decade plus thinking about. And it is terrifying when you look at the data of where we're headed. And I guess for myself, I keep going back into that exercise of focusing on solutions, trying to be optimistic, which is not to say I always succeed. It's not to say I wake up every day, you know, jubilant and happy and thrilled (laughs) about everything in the world. It's a kind of training to to keep striving to focus on the positive, focus on the solutions, because I think it's in doing that we're more likely to to find the solutions and um, achieve the solutions
1: we need. How should we speak to children, especially young children, about the environment in a way that does not terrify them, but also uh, engenders feelings that they will be the activists of the future.
0: I can only speak in my own personal experience. I don't say it's right, but it's what the choices I've made. I don't speak to my daughter in terms of like the threats or global warming or any of these kind of more scary and abstract elements of the situation. But we do talk a lot about just the relationship to nature and just trying to be mindful around waste, David Attenborough, who I had interviewed and I I wrote about in the book, when I asked him what should we all be doing, the simplicity of his answer, which was just stop waste and think about waste in terms of everything, energy, food, everything we're using and consuming, just try and reduce the wastage. That to me feels like a very simple message for children in terms of their relationships to the material world. That's not scary, but helps us be mindful of the way that I guess we engage with stuff in the material world.
1: It's interesting that you, in the book, are very conscious of your own privilege and how sometimes the environmental debate can sound very middle class. Mm -hmm. What do you think the challenges are to make sure that everybody is included in this? Because it does affect everybody, but sometimes it's, you know...
0: That's the great uh, irony in a way, that it can become a very middle class, privileged conversation. At the same time, it's really a conversation about justice because the people who will be hardest hit by the impacts of climate change and already being hardest hit by the impacts of climate change are usually poorer and more marginalized groups and communities and countries. Um, So there's a kind of paradox there between the people who are often having the conversation and the people who it really impacts.
1: And the fashion industry, of course, you know we can't have a conversation with you without talking about that. Do you feel that there is a, and you, of course, are not a spokesperson for the entire fashion industry, but <laughs> that there is a, uh, I want to make that very clear, uh, nor would you wish to be, I can imagine, um, whether there is a, a genuine passion to change the world or, or to support environmental causes, because, of course, we all know landfill, for instance, talking about Sir David Attenborough, waste, I mean, the amount of waste in the fashion industry is extraordinary, isn't it? It's, do you think that they they care?
0: There isn't a they, right? As you put at the beginning, it's not a... Um,
1: there's not an amorphous blob of... You
0: know, <laughs> exactly. That.
1: There's lots there's of individual <laughs> designers. and.
0: Yeah, I think there's a very wide diversity of people, as you'll find in many industries, and some of those people will care massively and are very mindful and at the front of trying to to make fashion more sustainable and others perhaps less so that being said in the 15 or so years that I've been working in sustainable fashion um, I've seen massive sea change in terms of the engagement I feel like it's gone from something that was quite niche very unfashionable like quite ugly crunchy in people's stereotype of what sustainable fashion looked like or felt like. And it almost felt a bit, yeah, like anti-fashion, like I was like criti- like critiquing the industry by engaging in that. To now something that feels very mainstream, and most of the big brands, if not all of them, are doing something to try and become more responsible. There are lots and lots of smaller brands and marketplaces being set up. It's still got a long way to go, but watching that trajectory makes me positive that it's going in the right direction.
1: Do consumers drive the fashion industry's attitude to this? Or is it the fashion industry that drives the consumers?
0: I think that's a very good question. And and I think that's where fashion is actually, has a special role to play because fashion does affect a zeitgeist and does dictate kind of cultural values, i.e. what was fashionable a hundred years ago, not just in terms of clothes, but in terms of clothes and also identity politics and status and all of the things that become associated with how we present ourselves to the world does change. And so if sustainability becomes more fashionable and you start seeing more sustainable ideas in vogue and kind of big magazines and with the big designers i think that does have a kind of residual effect in the rest of culture that said there is a backwards forwards always right between consumers and businesses and the change is also being driven by the fact that there is a cultural zeitgeist that is moving more in the direction i would say towards um, sustainability and fashion is also following that. So I think it's a, it's a dance, but fashion has a an interesting role to play in that
1: dance. Um, let's move on to your first object, Lily, um, which is an iceberg, funnily <laughs> enough. Tell us why uh, this photo uh, of an iceberg is important to you.
0: So I thought about what I had in my room that I've been writing in. And I did have for quite a long period of time towards the end of the writing the book, two photos up um, that I'd taken myself. I have an old Hasselblad um, camera that I'm privileged to shoot um, throughout the year and I print out some of the pictures that I like and these two ended up on my wall and one of them was a, my daughter with her cousins and um, and the other one was of an Oliver and artwork called Ice Watch where he brought icebergs from Greenland to London. We did it around the world but the one I saw was in London, um, put them on the pavement next to the Thames and then just left them for a few days while they melted into the pavement. And it's a powerful image for me because it's a reminder of what's going on. I think that's part of the problem with the environment. It's so easy when you're not living in Antarctica or the Arctic or next to a waste site, disconnected f- from what's going on, to remember it and to therefore make it part of our thinking in an everyday way. Um, but the reality is that ice is melting at a very rapid rate, accelerating rate. Apparently there's ten thousand icebergs falling into the ocean every second, which is just mind boggling. That photo was a quite beautiful artistic way to just try and stay connected with the with the real reason why I've, you know, been writing this book and for spending this time in this way.
1: Getting the language right, advising, not lecturing, not preaching mm. is interesting. Who of the people that you spoke to do you think got the language right.
0: One person I did who comes to mind and to that question is John Francis. In the early 1970s, I think it was 1971, there was a big oil spill in San Francisco Bay. And he was so affected by it that he just made a personal decision at that moment in time to try not to be responsible for any oil usage. And he just started walking everywhere. And he continued doing that for over 20 years. And then he comes up again at the end of the book because he gave this amazing message to me. He kept having to engage in these debates with people about walking and what impact that had. You know, people would question it and say, how's that gonna change the world? And so eventually he thought, I'm just gonna shut up. And for 17 years, he didn't speak. He did a PhD in um, environmental studies and to get to university, he walked across America and he did it in a kind of casual way. It took him seven years to walk across America. And because he wasn't speaking, he would, said he just listened and he listened to everyone, whoever he met on his path. When he got to the other side of America, to the East, he on Earth Day, he spoke for the first time because he felt like he had something to say. His realisation was that the environment wasn't just about writing laws and dealing with pollution. The environment begins with us because we... As human beings are inevitably a part of the environment and so it begins with us and our relationship to each other and if we're not able to heal our relationships to each other i.e by listening to each other then we'll be forever creating what he calls band-aids to fix uh, to fix problems he wasn't in any way preachy you know how can somebody be preachy if they've been silent for 17 years um quite the opposite yeah. but it was through example and through that insight that maybe is one of the you know struck struck a very deep chord with me.
1: Let's move on to your next object, uh, Lily, and uh, it's a drum. Tell us about the drum and why you wanted this to be one of your objects. Got it
0: here because I thought how can you say a drum and not have Ooh, a drum? Yes. Yeah, this is wow. a super special drum that I visited my mum recently and found in her house and I was so excited to find because I just lost it for over 10 years. I got this drum when I went to visit the Bushmen or the San, as they're called, in Botswana when I was 16, 17. And it's a beautifully, beautifully made small drum by them.
1: What was it about them? Because they, of course, you write about them uh, in the book.
0: Um, Well, the example that I give in the book is not so much about the way they lived. It's more about the kind of contrast between humanity's history which they represent in many ways as gather hunter communities Mm. and modern day systems like diamond mining in this instance because I was going out there to meet them to understand yeah the impact of diamond mining on their communities and what we consider development I kind of was really struck by this challenge of the, the argument that the fact that diamond mining has lifted millions of people out of poverty in some countries in the world and then that money can be channeled into really positive things like healthcare and education as arguably it had been done in Botswana justifies the kind of you know the kind of cultural environmental damage that the mining has had on gatherer hunter communities as we like to call them um, such as the San. when then you look in a bigger perspective you realize that gatherer hunter communities are arguably much more advanced in many ways than us because they've been much more sustainable. They managed, you know, James Sussman, who's my anthropologist friend who took me out to Botswana in the first place, would argue that they're the most sustainable communities in the world and that we should be actually looking to them to learn more about how they managed to live for hundreds of thousands of years without destroying their habitats and their planet.
1: Who, who challenged your own ideas most for the people that you interviewed for Who Cares Wins?
0: George Monbiot actually was a good cha- a good challenge. He very generously read um, one of the chapters in the book and gave me some feedback on it and he's quite as he writes about is quite kind of maybe critical of the idea that that capitalism can green itself and that we can kind of cons- yes. consume our way into <laughs> salvation. And I do try and explore both sides of that argument throughout the book his thinking weighed in on that. The the food chapter was a real head fuck and it was probably one of the hardest to write. In the environmental movement around food, you've got really quite polarized positions of people, all of whom are very smart and respect, you know, respectable with similar end goals, which might be sustainability, with very, very entrenched different ideas of how we get there. And so you have the kind of camp that argues that we shouldn't be eating any animal products whatsoever because it's destroying the planet and our own health and not to mention animal welfare and then you also have a group of environmentalists who believe that if you were to follow that argument to its logical conclusion you would end up with huge monocrop kind of industrial cultures around soybeans and grains that's actually really bad for the soil and really bad for the environment and that what we need is regenerative agriculture that includes animals in it arguably in a kind of much smaller way and very different way to how we're doing industrial animal agriculture today so that was a challenge to absorb both viewpoints and go on the journey with both viewpoints um, and be sympathetic to both viewpoints and try and work out where I landed
1: let's move on to your next object Lily which is a notebook so you're not someone who's forever talking into your phone for voice memos you like to write things down nice and old school
0: (laughs) <laughs> I love the idea of writing. It's now old school. Um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> writing? Who does that? It's amazing. It's Victorian.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think because I use my computer so much through email and different work projects, it's important to not just use that. But there's something about sitting down with pen and paper and physically writing your thoughts that somehow just is a different different experience that feels... Better, I want to say. And also you have then the possibility of rediscovering old thoughts, which I used to be mortified about. And I think one of, I wrote a will a few years ago on someone's advice and I added in it, like for all my, anything I'd ever written to be destroyed, like, diaries etc to be destroyed when I die. And then actually, I was in my mum's house when I found this drum, and I also found these teenage diaries, and it was hilarious. <laughs> they were <was> so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I just quite loved the ability to just dip into those old thoughts, which of course you wouldn't be able to do if it was filed away on a hard drive somewhere.
1: Are you still adamant that though you want to destroy all those writings? What about your daughter's ability to understand who the teenage Lily Cole was through those diaries?
0: I mean, maybe. Would I want to read my mum's old diaries? Maybe.
1: Really get an insight because, I mean, I've just started reading some letters that my parents sent to each other in the 60s and it, I, I find out things about them that I've ne- they've oh, never said nice. to me.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I think it's also the freedom. There's a freedom when you're only writing for yourself um, and you don't think anybody's ever going to see it that allows you to just to just say, you know, just write shit and like, do you know, to not be mindful, like like if you were dancing by yourself or singing by yourself, it's very different. Um, so I think it's yeah, that's true. trying to hold that, protect that, that freedom and that space is where I'm coming from.
1: Yeah. Let's move on to your next object because it's to do with music and, and I adore music. So let's talk about a ceramic speaker.
0: My starting point for, for answering the object question was what do I have in this room that I've been writing in? There's very little, but there is a ceramic speaker from which I obviously play music. One, because I love music but also because it is itself a really beautiful object that I prefer using as opposed to playing the music from my computer, for example. Um, It was designed by a friend of mine called Yayo and it's made in Stoke-on-Trent in an old kind of porcelain manufacturing, you know, where they used to make plates and cups. Yeah,
1: amazing. Yeah,
0: and as that industry has kind of declined in the UK, he um, had the innovative idea to start making weirder objects like speakers from porcelain. So, and it's got little holes in the top that you can put flower flowers, like make a little flower pot um, or junk and paraphernalia. But yeah, it's a lovely little object.
1: Do you have a very eclectic playlist when you're writing or, or is there a particular genre you gravitate towards?
0: I've been listening to James Blake quite a lot lately. I listen to Ludovico, I can't pronounce his surname, the classical musician Ennualdi. And I quite like Spotify's radios where you can put one of their songs and then go down a kind of rabbit hole of similar related music. Um, A lot of old school music. I like um, if you put on Ella Fitzgerald, for example, Mm. and then you again, you put it on a kind of radio and you see where that takes you. It can be quite interesting.
1: Let's uh, hear, actually... Your dulcet tones now, uh, reading an extract, the audio version of your book. The question will always be, What can we do to help? Let's just listen to that.
0: We don't need a handful of people doing zero waste perfectly. We need millions of people doing it imperfectly. Anne Marie Bonneau, Zero Waste Chef. The first and most obvious thing to ask is, Can we waste less? Some voluntary opportunities to reduce plastic waste in our lives are simple. Stop buying single use water bottles, use Tupperware boxes, local farmers markets, paper or cotton bags. Some touch points are less obvious, such as using a moon cup rather than sanitary pads. Yes, it's hard to avoid plastic outright, and often it inserts itself involuntarily into our lives. Food packaging and kids' products are the areas I regularly battle with. It is ironic, to say the least that we often use a material which will last up to a thousand years to transport the food and drinks we consume in minutes. I'm a diligent recycler, but I'm regularly disgusted by the size of my weekly recycling bin. Meanwhile, the new levels of plastic that enter your life as a parent are fucked up. An endless deluge of plastic toys, often given by well-meaning friends or family, non-biodegradable wet wipes and nappies, These baby plastics offer convenience and joy to us and our children in the short term, at their inevitable long-term cost. My daughter oscillates between trying to persuade me to buy her the plastic junk we pass in shops and helping me pick plastic debris out of the sand in beaches, narrated by her sweet wisdom that it will choke or even kill the turtles. Sincere thanks to David Attenborough for that.
1: That was Who Cares Wins written and read by my guest Lily Cole. It is available to buy and download on the 30th of July. There's a link in the programme notes of this episode. How did you find recording the audiobook?
0: It was interesting and challenging. Um, Interesting because I hadn't read the book in a long time and so it was quite nice to come back to and to verbalise it. Um, And the team I was working with were great. The producer was great. We worked with a local recording studio about 10 minutes from my house because of the lockdown situation I live in the countryside, but amazingly, Penguin found this guy who'd built a studio in the back, in his kind of back garden, and he was very sweet. So it was a nice experience. Nobody would, in their right mind, probably read a whole nonfiction book back to front, nonstop for four days, (laughs) let alone the one that they'd written. (laughs) So four days in, I was really sick of myself. (laughs) Um, But luckily then I had a break and finished it a week later and feeling a bit more positive.
1: (laughs) Now, uh, just a reminder whilst we're here, do remember to tell all your friends we're here. as a Penguin Podcast and rate, comment and subscribe to it. You can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. How have you changed your own life since writing this book based on the people that you spoke to and their advice?
0: I definitely have reduced my travel a lot because that felt like a real point of hypocrisy and um, contradiction in myself that was, I was just felt uncomfortable. Increasingly, I've gone from vegetarian to being like not vegan, but very close to vegan and very mindful around if I do any animal products where they come from. I'm trying to just generally buy less. But those are all journeys that I was already on. So it's maybe just continuing down those paths, if that makes sense.
1: And trying, of course, as you point out, walk past a toy shop with a five-year-old. Oh, right? my God. There's a bombarded with plastic of all different colours.
0: Do you know, Must in the back of my head while I'm saying that, I'm like, there's a voice that's just like, thinks of the yesterday and the birthday and the presents just like such bullshit, Lily. <laughs> <laughs> because
1: you it's... mean she wasn't just given recycled paper? <laughs> And so now go and draw on that. (laughs) With these crayons I found. I didn't buy them, I found them. (laughs) Happy fifth birthday, Walt. (laughs) That's
0: so funny. Um, (laughs) I bought her some clothes from Stella McCartney, which I felt not too bad about. And then an experience, because I felt not bad bad about that. But of course, she gets other presents from other family and friends, which is so sweet and well-meaning, and you can't feel like... The child situation, if you live in a country that's privileged, you know, and I've been to countries where the kids have absolutely nothing. I was in Mozambique a couple of years ago and the kids were playing with a football that they'd made themselves through tape. Like they just wound up lots of tape and rubbish and kind of taped it into a circle to make a football. And you see these situations and you just realise kind of how disgusting it is in a way, how much um, many of our kids own and get. But at the same time, I don't want to like demonise kids and my daughter for that desire for stuff. So it's a tricky one.
1: Yeah, it really is. Now, Lily, uh, lastly, what ultimately did you want to achieve by writing this book? I mean, you've mentioned already about challenging your own ideas about this. Was that at the heart of it? Or was it challenging our ideas?
0: So I was approached by Penguin um, because I knew... I'd set up this company called Impossible that began as a gift economy platform. I think they thought that was quite interesting and wanted to know why I did that. Why did you do that for years of your life? <laughs> um, <laughs> that weird curve. Um, so I started off thinking, actually, I would put I had put years of my life into that platform and that idea and that it would be a good exercise to kind of write and clarify why and all the research that went into that and why I think gift economies are powerful and can help our societies in many different ways. And that was the beginning of it. And then I wrote that, which became a chapter in the book and realised that that didn't in my mind warrant a whole book. Uh, There are quite a few very good books that already exist about gift economies and I didn't feel the need to like, to try and do my own version of that. Um, And so instead, I thought, actually, there are all these other ideas that I've been interested in or I've been engaged with in some ways um, around how you change systems and evolve systems and solve challenges that I think would be really interesting to document and pull together. So I gave myself a much bigger task rather stupidly of (laughs) of, um, (laughs) timesing the workload by 12 (laughs) to turn instead of writing about one idea, writing about many different ideas. And Penguin liked that. And so that became the work. And in terms of what I hope it will achieve, for anybody who reads it, make them feel empowered and inspired. Because I do believe that individuals, every single one of us has a really important role to play in creating our kind of collective reality and shaping our collective reality and pushing for the changes that we need to see happen or we want to see happen. Um, and I'm really a, yeah, big, a big believer in everyone's power to do that. Whereas it can sometimes feel like these issues are really far away and big and purely in the hands of like, you know, a handful of CEOs or government ministers to decide upon. Actually, I think the way our systems are designed, we all have an, a kind of critical role to play in dictating the decisions of CEOs or dictating the decisions of, of government ministers. And so, yeah, my hope would be that people feel a sense of empowerment as a, as a consequence.
1: Lily, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. You too. Amazing. Thank you so much.
0: Did you feel empowered?
1: I did. There's so much innovation in the book and often, uh, and I guess George Monbiot may take issue with this, but that industry investment for capitalism really can provide so many of the solutions to this. Mm -hmm. It's a really fascinating read. Sometimes it's a head fuck, I'm not going to lie. Uh, I don't know why I'm telling you that. You had to write it. It must have been a massive head fuck for you. But um, it is, it's, uh, it's, it's brilliant.
0: After Monica discovers an abandoned notebook in her cafe, she is taken on an unexpected journey of love and friendship. Through the honest story of six strangers, the notebook becomes a symbol of truth and connection.
1: One of Julian's self-portraits had hung for a brief period in the National Portrait Gallery in an exhibition titled The London School of Lucian Freud. Monica clicked on the image to enlarge it, and there he was, the man she'd seen in her cafe yesterday morning, but all smoothed out like a raisin turned back into a grape.
0: Sad, funny, and true to life, the audiobook edition of The Authenticity Project by Claire Pooley is available to download now.